Chronicles, 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, I'm going to kill you just like you killed my prophets by this time tomorrow. You've got 24 hours to live. And Elijah was afraid and arose and ran for his life. I believe the King James has it. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Having depression or coming down with the blues is not uncommon for man. In fact, I guess we all have from time to time uh, felt uh, moods of despondency and depression. It's not even uncommon for the people of God. You don't have to read far in the life of Moses to discover that he was a man of depression and at one time was hopeful that life would end for him. Jonah, after the greatest revival in the history of mankind was ready to die and hoped he could. And of all people, the Apostle Paul had times of despondency and depression. And if you read 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, you'll find him making this statement that he despaired of life. But one of the most surprising examples of a man with the blues is Elijah, this prophet of fire, as Sanders calls him. Especially when it came, when his depression or, his, or the moments, moods of blues and discouragement came after his great victory at Carmel. I mean, this guy had just had one of um, the most remarkable answers to prayer. God answered his prayer with fire. This man called down fire from heaven and changed the course of an entire nation. And the next scene we find him in He's praying or wishing that God would take his life. The picture of discouragement and despair and despondency. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit did not exclude this account of the life of Elijah. I mean, one of the most attractive things about the Bible, I think, is its realism. I mean, the Bible just paints man wart and all. Now, I want to look tonight at why Elijah was suffering from discouragement, why he had the blues. None of you maybe have ever, yes, you have. Why was he discouraged and how did, how, why did depression come? And then I want us to see how God deals with it. And there are four major characters in this drama that unfolds before us. And each one of them has a major uh, part or contribution to make to this uh, experience in Elijah's life. There is Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah and Jehovah God. And I want to give them all a kind of a, uh, uh, kind of a nickname 
in order to help us to kind of remember them. So we're following in our outline. There is Ahab, the henpecked husband. Now this fellow was really henpecked. I mean, he had feathers on his legs. So, somebody said that, that uh, speaking of someone, probably wasn't anybody here, but said he was so henpecked, he'd have to ask his wife permission to kill himself. You're talking about henpecked. Now, Elijah was a man who was um, henpecked. And if you really want to see the, uh, uh, the weakness of this man, you'll have to turn to 1 Kings chapter 21 and read the first 10 verses. It's a graphic description of the weakness of this man. Not tonight, but some other time. But in chapter 19, verse 1, here this henpecked man comes to his wife and tells her all that Elijah had, had done. Now, it's good that a man would share with his wife the experiences of, of the day and the experiences of his life. Sometimes I hear uh, maybe a wife say, uh, you know, my husband never talks to me. He never tells me what's going on. I have to find out from somebody else. It's great that a husband will share with his wife. That's not the picture you get from chapter 19, verse 1. I mean, he comes to his wife kind of like a child, whining about what Elijah was doing to him. And there are a couple of things in verse 1 that, re that reveal or show us why you'd know him as a henpecked husband. First of all, he fell apart under pressure and he leaned on his wife to get him through it. I mean, it was an over-dependence upon his wife. When pressure came, he always looked to her to help him survive the, the, the struggle, the pressure. And secondly, he looked to his wife to do his job for him. If you want to find the relationship that you're not to have as a husband with your wife, this is it. I mean, there was a child-mother relationship here instead of a husband-wife relationship. Then there's Jezebel, the domineering wife, the domineering woman. She took over. She said, step aside, buckwheat. I'm going to take this matter in my own hands. And she's a domineering wife, and we know that for two or three reasons. One is she took matter... Mercy. Must be a wife uh, in a control of that speaker tonight. We knew we were going to have this problem. It's not Dwayne's fault because this thing was turned up just like it was this morning. And then we couldn't hear, so we turned it higher... And it's just right, and we knew sometime in this deal tonight, this thing was going to go crazy. Some wife at home rejoicing. Now we need a, just a little, a little bit more up there, okay? We'll get it just right. Can you give me a little more volume, or did we blow it out? How's that? Great, thanks. All right. Jezebel took over. She was a domineering wife. She took matters in her own hands too quickly. Secondly... She did his job her way. And thirdly, she relied on the flesh when her husband caved in. She relied on the flesh when her husband crumbled under pressure. Now Jezebel sought to intimidate Elijah. Now hang in here with me for a minute. She, she sought to control him 
by intimidation and by threats. And she said to Elijah, you have 24 hours, I'm going to have you dead. And she put out this contract on him. And it's amazing that Elijah would, would fall for that intimidation and those threats. And, and it's, you know, I might say parenthetically that this is the way Jezebel probably controlled her husband with intimidation and with threats. And so it was just natural for her to do the same thing with Elijah. She put out a contract on him and threatened his life. I've had a few domineering wives put out some contracts on me. I'm going to be honest with you. In the churches that I've pastored, uh, Charles Howard said when he gets to heaven, one of the first things he's going to do, he's going to go up to Elijah, and he's going to ask him how he felt when, when, when Jezebel got after him. And he, then he said, I'm going to tell Elijah about a few Jezebels that got after me. Um, I could tell you some stories about that, domineering wives, you know, uh, putting out contracts on preachers because I'm, going to hear, I'm here to tell you that the prophets of God live constantly in the intimidation of threats of domineering wives. It's amazing, but domineering wives like to always like to take pot shots at prophets. And Elijah is no exception. If you want to know how a wife is to, you know, talk about the antithesis of the gracious woman, you've got it right here. The Lady Macbeth of the Bible, as Oswald Sanders calls her. Now we come to this main character, and his name is Elijah. When the threat was put out on his life, he, he fled to the backside of the desert, and there we find him in the text, this prophet of God in the blues. Now why did he fall for that intimidation and threat, and why did he get discouraged and despondent. Let me give you some reasons, and I think it might help us understand why discouragement comes to us. Number one, he didn't think realistically or clearly. I mean, just a little common sense would have told Elijah that this woman couldn't hurt him. I mean, after all, God had fed him by the brook in Cherith, and God had supplied his needs at Zarephath. And had not God, just a few hours before, consumed an altar with fire? And did he not rout the whole nation? I mean, just with a little common sense, he could have thought realistically and realized that this woman wasn't worth worrying about. But when you get despondent, it's hard to do that. Now, I don't know what, what, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg, which comes first. I'm not sure which comes first, discouragement and unrealistic thinking or unrealistic thinking then discouragement. I, but I do know that they are a reinforcing cycle. We begin not to think realistically. We don't use common sense, so we begin to get a little discouraged. Paranoia, paranoid thoughts begin to creep in. And the more we think unrealistically with common sense, the more discouraged we become, and the more discouraged we become, despondent, the more unrealistically we think. I'm here to tell you from experience, if for no other reason, discouragement or depression is the byproduct of unrealistic thought. And the Scripture said when he saw that, when he saw what? When he saw the threat. It's like a shadow. 
is like a child who sees these images in the dark, and they're not real, but unrealistic thinking presents them as real. And so here's this guy with despondency and depression, and all these unrealistic thoughts begin to come into him, paranoid thoughts, and bring about discouragement and, disp- and depression. It, does that sound like anybody you know? Secondly, he separated himself from, from every strengthening relationship. Now, I'm not going to read this whole text. I'm going to try to save that time, but you, you, you must read it. The Scripture says, however, in the passage that I read, that he left his servant there, and tradition has it that that servant was the son of the widow at Zarephath that he'd raised from the dead. I mean, he had carrying around with him as his companion this visible evidence of answered prayer. And every time old Elijah must have gotten a little discouraged, here was this boy there to remind him, Now, Elijah, don't you remember? You, by the power of God, raised me from the dead. And this young lad was there to encourage him and help him think objectively. And when he got to that place in his life of discouragement, he withdrew from this strengthening relationship. That too is a reinforcing cycle. That too I'm not able to discern which comes first, the chicken or the egg, the discouragement and the withdrawal or the withdrawal and discouragement. But I do know they're reinforcing cycles. Discouraged and depressed people are lonely folks. And the more they get depressed, the more we get depressed, the more we want to withdraw from others. And the more we withdraw and try to hide ourselves and isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves from other people, the more discouraged we become. Don't do that. Find you somebody who can help you think objectively. Now, they won't want to listen to you talk about your problems all the time, but find you somebody that you can be with who is a strengthening relationship who will keep everything in perspective for you. Don't withdraw from everybody. Third, he was caught in the aftermath of a great victory. I mean, he had just come down from Carmel. Now, I found that depression or discouragement often comes to me after some great victory in my life. Now, I'm not sure why, unless, it is, unless it's this reason. Maybe it's because, you know, when we've won some great victory, we have a tendency to become proud and self-sufficient. And we have a tendency to... to, to um, Uh, you know, take the credit for the victory in our life. But I have found this to be true, that oftentimes after some great experience, some wonderful or great victory, I'm the most vulnerable to discouragement. And I'm also aware that I get the most depressed and discouraged after some emphasis here at the church. It's kind of weird Maybe Christmas time, you know, we go through all these experiences of Christmas. We have these marvelous Christmas services. January the 26th, boom, I'm down in the dumps. I can go off on vacation, and I can just start driving home from vacation. Now, I don't think it's because I hate to get back to do right to work, but I just start feeling this downer coming on, you know, this depression there. And, and I think that was true with Elijah. It was after this great an exciting uh, experience of Carmel that he just hit rock bottom in discouragement. I mean, he's a man of like nature, the Scripture said with us. 
Fourth, he was physically and emotionally exhausted. He was wrung out. Now I want you to get this, the picture again of this, this man. For three years he lived on the cutting edge. I mean, he lived on the tightrope of starvation. Out there by the brook, ravens would come and feed him. And he watched that brook dry up. Then he went to Zarephath and saw his boy die, and the woman blamed him for it. And, and so here he was, you know, under the pressure of that. I mean, emotionally, he lived on a powder keg for three years. And everybody's dying around him, and, and animals were dying, and, 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 old, and old Ahab was hunting him. You know, he was a wanted, hunted man, a fugitive. And then all of a sudden, he, he appears under the, under the command of God, and he makes his long journey up to the top of Carmel, and up there he gets all emotionally caught up in that traumatic experience, and he prays, and God sent, and then he takes off on this cross-country race, 18, um, start to say 100 miles, ministerially speaking, 18 miles ahead of the chariot of Ahab, running faster than the horses, let me tell you what, three years he, he, he lives on the cutting edge emotionally and then he is physically drained. That's when depression comes. Let me tell you, look at that little thing at the top of your sheet. You just can't get away from it. It's not possible to live at the point of physical and emotional exhaustion all the time and not pay for it in depression. You just can't do it. It might be that what we need is not the minister, but you know we just need a, a tour guide to help us or a tourist guide, a, a ticket salesman, send us on a trip. Now, I know some of you don't have the slightest idea what I'm talking about. Some of you do. I mean, you put your nose to the grindstone and you stay there and, and, and all the time and you're going to pay for it by waking up one day with the blues and I'm preaching to myself. Now, the way we're constructed in this, this creation, this body in which we live, is that we have an emotion and we have feelings and we have a physical body and it's all tied together and we're spiritual beings and when we get drained emotionally and physically, it affects us spiritually. Number five, he submitted to, he yielded to the animal of self-pity. He said, I'm the only guy left that hasn't bowed his knee to, to, to Baal. And I'm telling you what, I'm, you know, I've been in this church four years and I'm the, only, I'm the only person here who loves God, you know, that kind of thing. All you folks need to get where I am. You know, here he is over here, self-pity. There's nothing any more pitiful than a guy who is immersed in self-pity. And he gave in to it. Now, let me tell you what. The choice is ours because self-pity is right out there, you know, right there to, to, right at hand's arm's length. And you can give in to it tomorrow if you want to or you can resist it. He submitted to it. And I was just looking at this thing before I came in here tonight. There's even one more that I didn't even notice there in the outline doesn't have. So you can put F or if that's next and look at verse 4. I'll show you something. He said, O oh Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. The, 
uh, the, the, uh, the fifth or sixth reason for his discouragement was he had an unrealistic goal set for himself. Who told him he had to be better than his father? And, you know, I think t- sometimes discouragement comes because we set up these, these uh, uh, goals or these ideals that are unrealistic. And we compare ourselves to other people. And we say, well, I'm not as good as he is, or I'm not as happy as she is, or I'm not as fine a Christian as they are, whoever they are. And we put these people up here. Some, sometimes they're just imaginary, and they're unrealistic goals, and we strive for these. Nobody tells Elijah that he had to be greater than his father except Elijah's own thinking. And he put this unrealistic, un a necessary demand upon his life. And he stood around and went around comparing himself to his fathers. And I don't tell you what, you want to get real discouraged, you start comparing yourself to somebody else all the time. I'm not as good as they are. I'm not as pretty as she is. That'll make you depressed. I'm not as good looking as so and so. Not as good looking as the preacher. That'll make you depressed. <laughs> now, finally, the faithful Lord. I mean, this is the beautiful part of it. There are three answers that God gave Elijah. I mean, how do you deal with a guy who has this depression? I know that there's a lot more involved in depression. God knows that I know there's a lot more involved in depression than just a little bitty sermonette on it. I've been there. But let me give you three answers from the text that God gave Elijah to deal with his depression. Number one, he allowed him to rest and refresh. Now, that's what's left in the verses I did not read. He allowed him to rest and be refreshed. Now, he came to Elijah and he didn't scold him. He didn't say, Elijah, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Get up from there. Get back up there where you belong, where I sent you. He didn't do that. God's mercy follows us all the way to Beersheba and loves us there. It's hard to believe sometimes. It's not hard to believe that God loves, loved Simon Peter when he was just right out there you know, uh, as the leader of the disciples. It's hard to believe God loved him when he denied the Lord, but he did. And it's, hard to believe that, it's not hard to believe that God will love Elijah on Mount Carmel. It's hard to believe he loved him out there in Bathsheba, but he did. He loved him the same. When he came out there where he was, he didn't say, Get up from there, you scoundrel, you, you lousy so-and-so that disappointed me. What's you doing here? He just let him rest. He knew what his problem was. And he fed him with ravens and cherith, and he fed him with a widow's, widow's a cruise down at Zarephath. Now he sent an angel to feed him. I mean, the progression of God's care is going, is ascending. It's going from the lesser to the greater. He has garden angels. So Elijah, when I run out of ravens and I run out of widows, I'll send angels to take care of you. Now you just take something to eat and you rest. Have a good sleep on, peaceful soul, and take your rest. Not you on the front row. And he let him go to sleep. He let him get his rest. And, 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 and that's what we need sometimes. And it, I have a good word to say tonight to those people who are disciplined enough not to work. Who are disciplined enough. I, I, almost, I almost wish I were like those people who were disciplined enough not to be a workaholic. Second... He communicated to him very wisely. If you look at verse 9, you'll get an example of it. It says, Then he came, he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? Notice that the, that the Lord communicated to him with what questions? With what questions? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I think there was a little rebuke in that, but, but you know, it really wasn't a rebuking kind of, of statement or question. It was a question that just drew Elijah to confront the reality of where he was and what he was doing. Now, that's what psychiatrists do. It's what psychologists do. They're skilled people who are able to ask those what questions that help us confront our own need and the answers that are there for us to discern. Now, he didn't scold him. He didn't preach him a sermon. He didn't say, okay, Elijah, sit up there, man, and I'm going to give you three points and a poem. He, he, he just dealt with him in a, in, a, in a what kind of way. And that's just like the Lord. He just helps us to realize our own solutions. Finally, he helped him to feel significant again. Beginning at verse 15, he did two things to help him feel significant again. Now, one of the first ways back from depression is to begin to feel some self-significance. Because when you get depressed, you feel like you're down on this, you know, you're the scum of the earth. You're the nobody, see. He helped him feel significant again. First thing he did was he gave him a job. Look at verse 15. It says, And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. I mean, so I'm going to make you the anointer. It's got to be a big job. I mean, I'm going to make you the guy that makes the king, that <laughs> sets the king out. I'm going to give you something to do. I'm going to give you an anointing job. First thing he did was he gave him a job that had eternal significance about it. Let me tell you what. If you're depressed, I have people tell me all the time, well, one of the ways you need to get out of depression is to find you something to do. Well, that's great. Let me tell you something better. If you want to get out of depression, find you something to do that has the anointing of God upon it. Find you something to do that God is in. And you get in that, and it's going to help. Second thing he did is he gave him a friend. And the Bible says that old Elisha came and never left Elijah after that. Gave him a friend. You need a friend. I think you need somebody you can talk to every day, pray with, etc. Now sometimes we get so enamored by the gift of God that we miss God. Look at verse 18. I'll close with this. He said, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, half a Durant. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, I don't know exactly what all that means, but what I like is that first pronoun. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. Now watch this. Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you off in 24 hours. And God said, I will leave 7,000 in Israel 
if not bow their knee to Baal. You, Elijah, and 6,999 more. You know what we need to do tonight, perhaps, when we get discouraged, is just get our eyes on the Lord and realize that all of the Jezebels, whatever they are, that cause discouragement and depression have no power, have no authority except what God allows them to have. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that there is hope in our faith, hope that enables us to be overcoming people, triumphant. God, when we get discouraged and depressed, ask us the questions that you ask Elijah and help us to, to deal with those things as you feel are necessary for us to, to be happy and to be healthy. Help us to believe that you care about us when we're in, on mountaintops and in valleys, and that you care for us in one place as well as the other. Because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now I'd like to give an invitation tonight, and this, this is kind of the way we'll do it. For those of us who have never claimed, trusted Jesus Christ, another opportunity to do that. Seems like when we come together, every time we come together for church, the gospel is preached that we ought to give people an opportunity to be saved. And so we want to give you that opportunity to trust Christ and be saved. Might be that you need to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe you're just down there in Beersheba. Need to get your eyes on God. Or maybe you need to join the church. We'll give that opportunity to you right now while we stand. We invite you to come.